Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Harvard here with you. I'll be picking up your phone calls in just a wee little bit here. But I have to share with you two quick data points, two news stories. Number one, I mentioned in my op-ed over at HartmanReport.com, in which I laid out the whole sordid story of how Republicans forced Abe Fortas to resign because he took a $20,000 fee for being on a charitable board and Republicans were slurring his wife, saying she was involved in a tax scheme that she had nothing to do with. And, you know, it was just total phony baloney. Uh, but he resigned anyway. He resigned from the Supreme Court, giving Richard Nixon an opportunity to put somebody on the court. And I have been ranting about this. Well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to the rescue, right? She tweeted, Clarence Thomas should resign if not his failure to disclose income from right-wing organizations, recuse himself from matters involving his wife, and his vote to block the January 6th commission from key information must be investigated and could serve as grounds for impeachment. God bless you, AOC, number one. And number two... Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin is pointing out that the uh, Justice Department has just hired a whole pile of lawyers. And this request for more lawyers has a lot of people going, oh, really, is that what's going on? Is this an indication? And I think it's it was something like 130 lawyers. It's not in this article right here. I'd have to go back over to Daily Kos to find it, I think. But I think that this shows that finally, thank God, Merrick Garland is taking this stuff seriously. He's hiring lawyers to look into what's going on with regard to January 6th. And frankly, I think it was that federal court decision that said that Trump almost certainly committed multiple felonies that is causing the Justice Department, now that a federal judge has come right out and said it, is causing the Justice Department to say, okay, we'll do something about this. CBS News has hired Mick Mulvaney as a paid on-air contributor. Now, let's just, you know, look at who this guy is. He was a uh, far-right congressman uh, from South Carolina from 2011 to 2017. He was a member of the so-called Freedom Caucus. In other words, uh, you know, taking, taking tips from, at the very least, the, the right-wing Koch network and all the various, you know, nonprofits and 
and uh, billionaires associated with that. So Trump put him in as director of the Office of Management and Budget. And as the director of, office, of the Office of Management and Budget, he reached out and took over, became the acting director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This is the organization that when the, uh, you know, when the banks crashed the economy in 2008, and 2000, well, in 2009, when Pr President Obama came into office, uh, he created, or he helped Congress create, this agency that Elizabeth Warren had championed for years, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Agency, to protect us from predatory banks. I mean, it, you could argue that it was the, you know, it was like, this was the response to, to the, bank, the banksters walking off with over a trillion dollars in money, and then they got bailed out by our government. Uh, you know, I thought they should go to prison. Uh, most Americans, I think, thought they should go to prison. I think, you know, President Obama and, and obviously President Bush uh, didn't, didn't agree with that. But this was a good step. The, OM, uh, the, the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, they, uh, they've already recovered over $11 billion in money that has been stolen from over 27 million American consumers by large banks. So Mick Mulvaney takes this thing over, and what does he do? He zeroes out its budget and tries to just end it altogether. It kind of limped through, but without a budget, it's tough to even pay your employees. He also, on January 2nd of 2019, he also took the job of chief of staff to Donald Trump in the White House. And there, his main job apparently at that time was setting up a back channel, basically to pressure President Zelensky of Ukraine to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and his son Hunter. This was Mick Mulvaney's project. He was the director of the OMB, and it was the OMB that came out and withheld $400 million, the Office of Management and Budget withheld that $400 million worth of military aid to Ukraine while Trump was trying to blackmail or bribe or, or extort or whatever the proper legal term is, Zelensky, to come up with something on his opponent. And then he doubled down on this. Mick Mulvaney did. In uh, May of 2019, he, he organized the Three Amigos. Remember the Three Amigos? Kurt Volker, Rick Perry, and Gordon Sondland to go in and, and pressure Zelensky. And they went over to Ukraine to try and lean on this guy. And when the story finally came out, Mulvaney admitted it. He said, I have news for everybody. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. Right. So this is the guy that CBS just hired as a commentator, put him on the air, and simply introduced him as, off, as director, former director of the Office of Management and Budget. Let's talk about Joe Biden's budget. What do you think? Didn't ask him about what he did as director of OMB to shut down the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. No, not a word. Now, it turns out, according to uh, Jeremy Barr over at the Washington Post, that the reason CBS hired this guy was because, well, they have a recording of the co-president of CBS News saying, and I quote, and he's talking to his staff, Republicans are going to take over most likely in the midterms. A lot of the people we're bringing in will help us in terms of access to that side of the equation. Right. This is grim stuff. I mean, it's just, Mick Mulvaney once told an audience, this, this was when COVID started, right? I mean, you know, he was 
the White House chief of staff when COVID hit the United States. And he came out and he said that uh, Trump was extraordinarily proud of his extraordinary response to COVID. And Mulvaney then was at CPAC and he engaged in this dialogue at, at CPAC with uh, Stephen Moore. And, uh, you know, who, who said, you know, what are you guys doing about this? And he said, we put restrictions on travel from China that, quote, would prevent a further outbreak in this country. Right. How'd that work out? And then when they kind of pressed him on it, he said, well, the best thing to do to calm the markets, this was, you know, the market had just crashed. He said, the best thing to do to calm the market would be tell, tell people to turn the televisions off for 24 hours. This is not Ebola. This is something we know how to deal with, said Mick Mulvaney. Two years later, a million Americans, roughly, are dead. Stephen Moore ended that segment, as uh, Richard Hine is noting over at the Daily Edge on Substack. Stephen Moore ended that segment by thank, saying, thank God we don't have a socialized health care system in the United States. Hine notes on Mulvaney's watch, the White House took a wrecking ball to checks and balances by vowing to defy all congressional subpoenas, which, by the way, they did. On Mulvaney's watch, the Trump administration launched an unconstitutional attack against the process to conduct a fair census. And on Mulvaney's watch, at least 25 administrative, uh, administration officials received cure, security clearances that should not have been granted based on the recommendations of intelligence officials. I would add, Jared Kushner was one of them. He was deemed a security risk, but he was given access to top secret, high top secret, whatever you want. It's okay. He's my son-in-law, even though he's a professional grifter. Remember when Les Moonves said, you know, Trump may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS? Well, CBS appears to be following that same line of thinking. So the question is, you know, how do we get some kind of rational news in America? How, do we have to put a warning label on Republicans when they come on TV? Last Sunday, several of the networks carried nothing but Republicans on some of their Sunday shows. There were, there were a number of uh, you know, programs and people calling them out on this. Are we watching the reconsolidation of the right in American media? I think so. David in San Pedro, California. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I have been getting a zillion telemarketing calls talking to me about senior benefits and things like that. Right. And most of them trying to sell um, you Medicare Advantage, I'm guessing. Yeah. So it seems. And frankly, I've not been talking to them because I don't trust them at all. And That's I wanted wise. to pick your brain to see what the uh, the best resource for finding out information, which way I should dance on all this. Well, what I can't give you advice, David. I'm not a licensed counselor or whatever. I can just tell you what I did when, and when I did my research when I turned 65 back five years ago. And that was I discovered that, first of all, Medicare is the best program out there. You can get Medicare coverage. It covers you everywhere in the country. There are no deductibles. There's not, but there is this 20% hole in it. And so you can fill that 20% hole with what are called Medigap plans, M-E-D-I-G-A-P. And there's a number, pretty much every insurance company offers them. The big predatory insurance companies offer them. The littler insurance right. companies offer them. What I found was that the companies that have the word mutual in their names tend to be the most trustworthy and, the most, and have the most competitive plans. Yeah. 
and I got one of those. And because mutual insurance companies are owned by their, they're like credit unions. They're owned by their customers rather than their stockholders. Although it's not always the case. Sometimes it's just a leftover name. But that's all I've done is I've got regular Medicare and I've got a Medigap plan, both Louise and I have, and it has served us really well through multiple surgeries and cancer and got all, all, all kinds of stuff. But I yeah. would advise anyone to avoid Medicare Advantage like the plague. David, thanks for the call. Ron in Land Lakes, Florida. Hey, Ron, what's up? Hey, Tom, I was just thinking, why can't we put a tax on mega churches that are making hundreds of millions of dollars every year? Most other democracies do. You know, churches, when, well, they, I, when they make money, they pay taxes, and, uh, but not in the United States. If a church makes money, you know, they just get to keep it. Well, I think it's time for us to start taxing the mega churches where they're making fifty, a hundred million dollars. The thing the about the itself. thing about this, Ron, is that uh, you know a, a church like a business it doesn't have to pay taxes. All they have to do is recycle their money. If you've got a small business at the end of the year and you've got you know ten thousand dollars left over at the end of the year and you don't want to pay income taxes on it, uh, at, you know a corporate income tax on it. You simply, you know, you buy a new printer, or you buy a new computer, you spend that $10,000, you invest it in a tax deduct, you know, a business uh, uh, purpose. Similarly, if you have a church and at the end of the year, the church has $10,000 left over and they don't want to pay taxes on it. I mean, right now they don't pay any taxes on it. But if they didn't want to pay taxes on it, they could use it to, to do outreach. They could use it to build a website to talk about the cool stuff they're doing. They could go feed some families. They could go help, you know, join Habitat for Humanity and build some houses. There's all kinds of things churches could do with their surplus money instead of buying a new private jet for the founder of the church. But, you know, they'd rather have the private jet. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, uh, you know, if they were doing more to help, you know, poor people with housing or food, I would be all for it. But, you know, we know that most of that money is going to them, although everything is under the church's name, yeah. not their name. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Carl in Seattle. Hey, Carl, what's up? Hi, Tom. I have a, a little conversation with you about uh, organized religion and its conflicts here in, in the United States and also in Russia. Uh-huh. I was listening to a Sunday morning. I got up early one day. I got up, so I watched some TV. And I, the word socialism came up in one of the preachers, you know, and I've heard that before. Surprise, they're, surprise. They're kind, of, they're kind of like saying that's kind of like the devil, the evil. This whole re- organized religious thing has gotten out of hand. Yeah. And so what happens is, is that people have been picking that up. But one of them is Ginny Thomas. Yeah. See, they're holy rollers. They'd rather have the oh, world crash and burn rather than get their way. You know, it's fine with me if people want to, you know, subscribe to any old wacky religion they want. I have no problem right. with that. As long as they're not trying to force it on me and as long as they're not trying to run my government. But this is the problem right. is that most of these right-wing preachers want theocracy. They want a government run by preachers. And, and right. of course, you know, there's, they're competing to who's going to be at the top of that pile. And this goes back to Jerry right. Falwell and Ronald Reagan. You know, they, 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 yep. Reagan made a deal with the devil, and and you know, and, and in my opinion, that's Falwell, and and uh, and then you know, after Billy Graham died, his son Franklin, you know, another grifter, just you know, started promoting the grift, and I think it's destructive to democracy. I think it's destructive to the United States, and I'm with you, Carl. I'm, I'm with you. Thank you very much for the call.
Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. A federal judge in Florida yesterday put Florida on 10-year probation for passing voting laws that this judge said, U.S. District Judge Mark Walker, said were specifically designed to, uh, quote, with the intent to discriminate against black voters, end quote. He wrote a 288-page ruling about this. Uh, this is in response to a lawsuit from the League of Women Voters and the NAACP. And uh, the, the, Florida's law is almost identical in many regards to Georgia's and Texas and, and several other states. And so, uh, you know, if this was upheld, it would be a big deal. What this judge was basically doing was saying that, you know, this is a violation of the Voting Rights Act. The problem is it's going to go to the appeals court, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which used to lean liberal until Donald Trump came along. Because there were several vacancies that appeared on that court during the Obama administration, people, liberals on the 11th Circuit who retired while Obama was president, thinking, oh yeah, Obama will replace me with somebody, and Mitch McConnell blocked all his appointments. So Donald Trump was able to appoint over 300 federal judges, and a number of them were on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which has now packed with Trump appointees. And even if the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals upholds this uh, district judge's a ruling and says Florida's laws are discriminatory and they can't go into effect. It then goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, which has already gutted the Voting Rights Act. So I'm not optimistic about some kind of a resolution from this, but I do think it's worth noting. I just wanted to put that on your radar screen. I think it's an important story. Number two, you'll recall, I, we, and we reported this earlier in the week, when Madison Cawthorn came out and publicly said that he had been invited by Republican friends of his, he had been invited, I mean, he didn't identify them as Republicans, he ca he's called them politicians that I look up to. I don't think he's talking about Democrats, uh, you know, who had invited him to orgies at their homes and to, and, and, and were doing key bumps of cocaine. Well, you know, he's, he was chastised by Kevin McCarthy, who said, you know, don't you know Republicans and QAnon, we're accusing Democrats of doing this stuff. You're not supposed to accuse Republicans of it. We're supposed to be pure as the driven snow. Don't, don't look about what Jim Jordan knew about, you know, what was going on with sexual predators, you know, back when he was a coach in Ohio. 
Uh, you know, <laughs> let's not talk about that. Let's instead talk about uh, Democrats like, uh, I don't know, uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Um, so, but now Roger Stone has come out. This is where it gets really weird because Madison Cawthorn has kind of, you know, dialed it back a little bit. And now, although he has not said I was lying. And Roger Stone has now come out and said, yeah, those orgies are real. Republicans do that. So the question in my mind is, who was it who, who invited Madison Cawthorn to an orgy? Or did a key bump with him? Or offered to do a key bump of cocaine with him? The only, the only, the only name that makes sense to me is Don Jr. But maybe I'm missing something. Maybe you have some insights on that. So I, let me just toss that out for you. It's Anything Goes Friday after all. So this is my Anything Goes Friday topic. <laughs> And then finally, uh, the, the Republicans are all in a tizzy because the Clinton, the 2016 Clinton campaign is uh, having to pay a small fine. It's, it's, uh, 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 it's a couple tens of thousands of dollars. I think it's $35,000. I don't have the amount right in front of me, but that's my recollection. But in any case, it was a small, maybe it was $135,000, whatever it was. It was a relatively small fine because they listed their payment for the Steele dossier, which, by the way, had first been started by Marco Rubio's campaign. It was Marco Rubio it was Marco Rubio who hired the guys who did the Steele dossier. And then when he lost in the primary to Donald Trump, the Clinton campaign picked it up and said, "Okay, we'll give you some more money, just keep on doing that research and that became the Steele dossier." And the Clinton campaign billed this as legal services because they had they had hired, you know, they had gone through a law firm to hire Michael Steele. But actually, it should have been labeled opposition research. And because it was mislabeled on their, uh, on their tax forms, they got hit with this fine. So Republicans are like, see, we told you there's something nefarious going on here. It's terrible. Oh, my God. But this week, Donald Trump reached out to his old buddy, Vladimir Putin. It was the day before, by the way, state media in Russia said maybe it's time for us to help our, our good friend Donald Trump, or words to that effect, get reelected. Donald Trump reached out to his good friend, you know, Vladimir Putin, and said, "Hey, you got any? You want to pass along any of that dirt on Joe Biden and his son?" Speaking of Donald Trump, the White House photographer uh, Shayla Craighead, the White House photographer, is an employee of the federal government. And so her photographs are in the public domain. And, you know, anybody can use them any way they want. And so Trump took a bunch of her pictures and turned it into a photo album, his book, and for which he's charging over $200. But here's where it gets weird. Um, first, aides to Mr. Trump, this, this is from the New York Times. First, aides to Mr. Trump asked, for her, asked her for a cut of her book advance payment in exchange for his writing a forward and helping promote the book, according to former associates of Mr. Trump. Then Mr. Trump's team asked Ms. Craighead to hold off on her book project to allow the former president to take her photos and publish his own book, which is now selling for as much as $230 a copy. A spokeswoman for Mr. Trump, Taylor Butowich, did not dispute that an aide had discussed the possibility of Trump writing the book. Instead, said Trump decided to do his own book first. Uh, blah, 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 blah. What a, as uh, uh, this is Susie Madrak over at crooksandliars.com 
says uh, Trump had to grab them first, thus undercutting the potential market value of Craighead's book deal. What a money-grubbing worm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if anything, that's an understatement. Okay, picking up your phone calls. Rebecca in Rockport, Massachusetts. Hey, Rebecca, how's everything in Massachusetts? Uh, very nice, actually. Thank Good. you. And first of all, I want to thank you for what you do, not only on their television and radio broadcasting, but your writing and everything else. We thank need you. more people like you getting the word around. Um, what I'm calling about is to try and bring attention to people that may not know that the, right now uh, Health and Human Services through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation has completed a, a pilot program that would privatize Parts A and Part B of Medicare. In other words, basically make everything Medicare Advantage-like. Right. I know. Uh, and, and, and they're, and they're working with doctors and hospitals to flip people onto Medicare Advantage or onto these programs without their consent. And, right. and yes, the Biden administration is continuing. They stopped one of the programs, one of the more toxic of the programs, but they're continuing this grand experiment. And I think it's just terrible. And, and, yeah. and we all need to be speaking out to the Biden administration. The easiest way to do that is to call your elected Democratic representatives and put some heat on them. The number for the congressional switchboard is 202-224-3121. Yep. I just wanted to, get to see that come up on your program. Thank okay. You. Rebecca, thank you very much. I do appreciate that. Juanita, in Presser, Washington. Hey, Juanita, what's up? Uh, you were talking about the people, the, the media is all, you know, getting toward the conservative. And yeah, they're, the getting, they're getting ready for the Republicans to be back in power. Okay. I'm on satellite TV because I'm out in the rural area. I can pick up English channels that are Japanese and in Korean. I listen to their news. There is another channel that has uh, Dutch Avala news. Mm-hmm. And the French in twenty, no, no, in English. It's, oh, it's a, no, no, in English. Okay. French twenty-four. It's it's right. I, I can get those. You know, I can get. I can't get Deutsche Welle, but on just on my cable TV thing, I I can get BBC and France twenty-four. Those are. I guess those are the only two now. But you're saying these are on okay. radio stations in, in your? No, these are on. These are in satellite. I don't know what listening oh, is for everybody else. Yeah. Okay. okay MSNBC. For three hours at night, it's showing Sky TV out of the UK. Yeah, which but is. But what I'm trying to say is, one needs to look at everybody's news, not just. I the, see. You know. Okay, that's good advice, Juanita. That's very good advice. And I, I do watch, and I do watch C-SPAN, both one and two. I am particularly interested in when these guys vote for things. Yeah. And you say it right there on C-SPAN. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Juanita, thank you. Uh, and spot on. I, Louise and I, particularly on the weekends, we watch a lot of BBC and, and France 24. Lisa in New York, Delaware. Hey, Lisa, what's up? Thinking about this whole Republican branding and about the idea that there's this huge increase of crime in the liberal cities, liberal-run cities. Um, and I saw Glenn Kessler from Washington Post on, and he fact-checked. He, he just has an article out about red state, blue state crime rates. Right. And uh, it is just a lie that keeps getting perpetuated on media stations. I even saw MSNBC, someone talking about these huge rates of crime in the cities, right. in, in liberal-run cities, and it's BS. 
Yeah, actually, um, you have a higher murder rate, and I think most most other violent crimes on a per capita basis in red counties in the United States than you do in blue counties. What? But the, like the Jacksonville, Florida. Exactly. And but whereas, whereas, but but in terms of absolute numbers, cities are always going to be higher because they've got more people there. But absolute numbers are right. meaningless. You've got to put them in context. It's got to be how many how many people get murdered out of every million citizens or out of every hundred thousand. And it has citizens. to do with gun laws too, because they're very back lax gun laws in the red cities. Exactly. Um, in the red states, but Glenn, Glenn Kessler is the king of all kings as far as fact-checking goes. Okay, I'll have to uh, check it out, Lisa. It, it yeah, I got good. it on my phone. I fact-check a lot. <laughs> okay. Lisa, thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. You're, you're, you're absolutely right, and I've, I've written about that, actually, that you know, the, if you, if you want to have a decent quality of life, in fact, this should be my op-ed tomorrow, if you, you want to have a decent quality of life, do not live in a red county or a red state. And it's so easy to document that stuff. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Helping you win the water cooler wars. We'll be right back on the other side of this break. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rick in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Rick, what's up? Hi, Tom. Well, I wanted to comment on something you were talking about the other day, which was why uh, the Manhattan District Attorney was not prosecuting Trump. Right, Alvin Bragg. And Interestingly, by the way, Giuliani went on Steve Bannon's show yesterday, Rudy Giuliani, and said that, you know, his son is running for governor, and said that if his son becomes governor, the first thing he's going to do is fire Alan Bra Alvin Bragg because he won't prosecute the right people. Um, Bragg, <laughs> but ironically, Giuliani was not talking about Bragg's unwillingness to prosecute Trump. He was talking about Bragg no, saying no. that, you know, we're not going to prosecute low-level crime. You know, uh, we're, we're going to try and reduce the prison population, basically. But back to you, Rick. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Well, I have a theory. 
And it's been really well documented that the orange stain has long ties with the mob. Yeah. And I think the orange stain called in some of the, some favors. And I think some people in that office got threatened. It's entirely possible. I mean, I, I would like to see there was a, a, a great piece published. I believe it was in the New York Times, might have been the Washington Post two, three days ago. I read a little piece of it on the air here. Uh, where a couple of you know real high-powered lawyers, one a criminal defense lawyer and one a prosecutor, a career criminal defense lawyer and a career prosecutor in Manhattan, wrote this letter, this open letter uh, to Alvin Bragg, to the, to the district attorney in Manhattan, saying, "You owe us an explanation. It's time for you to explain why you dropped this investigation." And I agree. I you know generally speaking, I get it. DAs typically don't talk about cases, particularly cases they're not going to prosecute. But this is an exception. And I think, Rick, I think that your, your hypothesis holds a lot of water for me. Thanks a lot for the call, Rick. Deborah in Seattle. Hey, Deborah, thanks for listening to us on KBCS. What's up? I just wanted to back the discussion um, out a little bit because whether or not a, you know, any individual signatures in that process are obtained fraudulently, I mean, that's, that's one issue. But if you kind of look at it in the bigger picture, um, I'm, I'm um, in the state of Washington. I'm just going to read you one sentence from the Secretary of State's office website. Okay. In 1912, Washington became one of the first states to adopt the initiative and referendum process, thus securing the rights of citizens to make and remake their laws directly and to provide a check over the decisions of their legislature. And I think the influence of paid signature gatherers kind of um, speaks to the sort of thing that you talk about with big money and dark money buying politicians. Yes. I mean, this is just a mini version of that. That's, where, that's my concern. You know, and Sean, Sean looked it up during the break. I think we've outlawed that for, for ballot initiatives here in Oregon because we, we, what we were seeing was we were getting all these right-wing crank ballot initiatives that sounded good. You know, like we've got this kicker thing um, that was the result of one of these things, where at the at the end of the year, if the state has money left over, they have to issue refund checks to everybody in the state. And of course, the, the wealthier you are, the bigger your refund check is, instead of state hanging on to that money and having a rainy day fund. Why did that get passed into law? Because a bunch of right-wingers wanted to basically crush the state budget. These are anti-government right-wingers. And, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, they, they hired a bunch of paid uh, signature gatherers and, and put something on the ballot that the average person doesn't care about. I mean, you know, the average person gets like a $3 check back from the state. But there's a few billionaires who are getting, you know, million-dollar checks back from the state. Absolutely. And when you have unlimited budget to be able to, you know, advertise sometimes, you know, you know deceptively, Right. You know, by the time they sort all that out through the courts, it's too late. The elections happened. Right. Now, yeah. the caller, so where this, where this started, Deborah, was I had a caller from Iowa who said that um, there are, the, the Secretary of State is double-checking the signatures for all the Democratic candidates who are on the ballot. Now, he, he, was, he wasn't sure if they were double-checking the ones for the Republican candidates. I would guess they probably are. I think that's a routine thing. And then this caller from Michigan mm -hmm. said that, you know, she's a paid signature gatherer and it's a great gig. And, you know, if you're trying to get a candidate on the ballot, you know, I get it. And, and, I, and, I, and you know, it would be great to have, you know, a way to make a little extra money on the side. Um, but I am concerned about the possibility of corrupting politics, you know, a big money corrupting politics. If it's to get a candidate on the ballot, though, I'm not as weird about it or concerned about it, weirded out by it as if it's a ballot initiative where you're actually trying to make legislation. 
And I don't know if Michigan mm -hmm. has ballot initiatives or not. I believe they do because I think they overturned uh, Governor Snyder's, uh, uh, you know, uh, little dictator law, his emergency manager law with a ballot initiative. Um, so, but, you know, obviously they, they allow, you know, paid ballot uh, or paid signature gatherers there. I'm, I'm, you know, with regard to candidates, I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent about it. With regard to, like you said, Deborah, and I think it's a really important point, with regard to actually making laws, paying signature gatherers is not that different in my mind from paying legislators. You know, it's, it's Absolutely. And, and so it's just, I, I just see it as a form of corruption. Deborah, thank you for the call. Mm -hmm. And thanks for, for bringing some nuance to this conversation. I really appreciate it. Reggie in Detroit, Michigan. Hey, Reggie, what's on your mind today? How's it going, Tom? Good. I just want to go over maybe four bullet points on why I, the, the loss of information control is driving authoritarianism and the changes we're seeing. So, first of all, Openly available and equally accessible information is basically transformed competition to a knowledge-based race. Big data is less about the amount of data, but the drive to extract value from it. So businesses are competing based on efficiency and converting information into knowledge and putting that into their products. So with efficiency now being the basis of competition, a primary basis, we know the ultimate of inefficiency is collaboration, collusion, or cooperation. And this efficiency drive is pushing down wages and decreasing jobs with automation. But the big point that I think that we're not recognizing, we're not really thinking about the future, the inability to control information is pushing what I call information capable of mass destruction. We already know that uh, like nuclear information is out there. The biggest hindrance to creating nukes is the resource requirements. But as we know with biological, nanotechnology, and with things like genetic printers, that type of information is, is funneling down, not just around the world, but to the individual level. And so what that means that at some point in the future, citizens who will be capable of basically making them putting themselves above the law. It's like they would have the power of nations and that would invalidate authority as we know it. it I would, would argue that that's already happening. It's it. already happening with, with big exactly. tech. And it's happening not necessarily because big tech has a bias, although I, I personally believe they do, but it's happening because, on, for example, if you just plug uh, right to work into a search engine, the top 20, 30 hits that you get are all going to be sites talking about how wonderful it is that, uh, you know, you can opt out of a union or unions are terrible. You know, it's all going to be right wing propaganda. You might find one link that actually describes what right to work is, which is, you know, the ability to destroy a union, you know, <laughs> legally. Um, and, and, and that's just one of a million examples. I mean, I, I could give you, I could list them all day long because I, I use search engines every day for the for my daily rants. You know, as I'm writing these. And things. I think, and I think that is the the uh, the mea culpa where they recognize, where you know that's the admission that information cannot be put back in the box where it's lost because they're trying to flood the market with misinformation yeah. to cover up the truth. Well, and they're doing it. You've got these right-wing yes. you know, right billionaires are funding literally thousands of websites that purport to be news sites that are just spreading right-wing you know, misinformation yeah. and lies. And, and they're getting all spidered by the search engines, and they all pop up. It makes me crazy. Jeff in Portland, Oregon, listening on X-Ray FM. 
want to address one of your Hartman reports from this week. It's posted on Common Dreams today, but uh, really quick before I do that, I just want to point out how absurd it is to me that despite their brutal bombing and blockading of Yemen, we're still begging the Saudis to pump more oil so we can apparently fund their war machine rather than perhaps allowing Venezuela to re replace that Russian oil and gas that Europe is getting. I'm you know, with you, although it's not quite that simple because the Venezuelan oil can only be refined in a very small percentage of the world's refineries. But yes, I agree with your point, Jeff. Yeah, and our friend Greg Palace wrote another piece about this last week. And the natural gas that the Nord Stream 1 is funding Putin with, that's still up and running. Nord Stream 2 got canceled, but Greg says Venezuela can supply that gas, yeah. even aside from the oil. But Tom, in response to your Hartman report, titled The GOP Will Exploit Every Single Crisis to Implement Authoritarianism. You know, I have an idea for progressives to push back with, and especially hoping to engage the youth vote, which is going to be key this year and in 2024. Ron Brownstein wrote a good piece about this for CNN last week. But as you know, Tom, back in 1944, when FDR introduced his second Bill of Rights, he famously said, people who are hungry and out of a job are the stuff of which dictatorships are made, yep. to the point of your article. So, Tom, what do you think about the idea of the Progressive Caucus not only being more aggressive, as Rokana said, but also, but also be more cohesive and working together to come up with a 21st century second Bill of Rights that addresses the climate crisis, that guarantees all Americans the right to living wage jobs, health care, housing, a college education, etc., and maybe just as importantly, as FDR did, relevant to today's inflation discussion, giving a guaranteed all businesses, big and small, freedom from unfair competition and monopolies. What do you think about the Progressive Caucus unveiling something like that, Tom? I think it's a great idea, and, and I, I think they should do something like that. I know that, uh, I believe it was Jeff Cohen and Harvey Kay wrote an op-ed uh, last week uh, promoting something very similar to that. There have been a number of other suggestions. I've been waiting for somebody, some politician somewhere to pick up some piece of this and, uh, you know, so that we could give them props and get them on the show and really push it. I, I think what you're speaking to, Jeff, is a larger failure of the Democratic Party to think big. Uh, you know, you would think that after watching Newt Gingrich back in the 90s come in with his, uh, you know, his contract with America, uh, which was a 10-point plan. Six of the 10 points pointed to one single piece of legislation that was tax cuts for rich people, right? But nonetheless, he, he says, we've got this 10-point plan, and now Rick Scott's got his 11-point plan, which sunsets you know, Medicare and sunsets uh, Social Security in the next five years. Mitt Romney talking about, let's dial back on, on retirement benefits for young people. Republicans have their plans, and they're not afraid to come out and say, here's a big, bold plan. And I think Democrats need to be doing the same. The other thing that I think is, you know, that, that this administration should be doing right now, that Biden should be running a base strategy the same way that the, the Republicans are. He should be throwing some red meat to his base. And specifically, I think that making a lot of noise about the fact that the House just decriminalized marijuana or just legalized marijuana and the Republicans are going to block it in the Senate. That should be huge. And I think that Biden should be ending student debt in the United States, or at least the half of student debt that is federally funded. 
he has the yeah, ability that, to take a big bite out of that. And maybe maybe they're three steps ahead of me on this strategically, and they're planning on doing it in September. So it'll have an impact no, in the election. He, but I don't know. Yeah, he can't wait. He can't wait that long, though, Tom, because uh, Pramila Jayapal, um, she tweeted yesterday that the uh, uh, pause on student uh, debt is going to end at the end of April. Yeah, so, that's right. And, you know, so he's got to do that before uh, he's got to do that this month. Otherwise, you know, the average payment is like four hundred dollars per person. And in these times, that's a that's a big extra burden. So, yeah, yeah I, I would put that at the top of the list for sure. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of things there. But, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. OK, Jeff, thank you very much for the call. Eric in Seattle. Hey, Eric, you you are apparently echoing a conversation that Nate and Joyce and Sean and I were having here after I told Congressman Khanna that if uh, America was under attack from the Russians or the Mexicans, that I would join with the Proud Boys to fight against them. You want to take issue with that? I do, Tom, and thank you for taking my call. I think your platform has a very large influence. Uh, I know because I listen to you a lot, and and uh, I, I, I am moved by many of the, of, of the topics that you discuss and, and the, the history that you mentioned. But this idea is very concerning because there are many people in this country who have experienced violence through racism and to to hold up regardless of of name proud boys as of battalion there you know it, it it does not dilute the fact of racism and the racist ideology that they espouse to. And, you know, even though they may be in percentages, a smaller number in any given population, it is irrelevant because of the sway and the power that they have through violence. I mean, the Nazis in, in Germany during World War II were a minority in the population, even the, the frame of thought was considered to be not in the mainstream, but through violence and coercion and manipulation and false flags, they were able to take over the country. I, will, I personally, and I'm sure I'm, I'm in a, a very good company with many others, would not stand shoulder to shoulder with, with people who, who have been racist uh, against anyone just for the fact of defending our country. I think we would all defend our country, but uh, if they were to be allowed to to participate in that in that manner and accept it, they could easily grow more in in power in the government after the supposed invasion of our country. So the and Proud Boys are just you're, you're starting to repeat yourself, Eric. So the Proud Boys are basically the modern day incarnation of the Klan. Do you think in 1944 or 1941 that uh, Franklin Roosevelt should have? I had some sort of a survey so that Klan members could not become part of the military to fight the Germans? I think the, that racism should have been addressed through political power. You're not answering my question, Eric. Should we exclude what, what racists it? from the military during time of war if you're not willing to fight with a racist? Are you willing, are you willing to let your city be destroyed? because you're not willing to fight with somebody who you disagree with or who, 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 who hates you, who openly hates you, but is on your side in this battle? Well, you know, as a veteran, as a veteran myself and uh, in combat experience, you know, there are people who would definitely, if they were racist, would have no problems 
causing harm to their fellow soldiers. So, yes, I do believe that they, they should be screened out of the military and the police and any public service because it is a cancer on any society. Oh, I, I, I'm with you on, during any normal time, Eric. I'm talking about in the middle of a war. I'm talking about when, no. when the survival of your family is at stake. If the Russians are coming into Seattle, Washington, and they have burned down half the city, and they're coming for your neighborhood, and your right-wing neighbor next door with his Trump flag out front and his Gadsden flag flying from his roof comes over to your house and says, I got two guns. You can have one. I'll have one. We're going to stop these suckers. Would you say, no thanks? I don't think that would happen. I don't think that that has happened throughout history, Eric. It's why why the the old saying, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, is such a cliche. No, I don't agree. I don't agree because I think, if anything, people who uh, who are you know racist, they do not look at uh, friendship at a time of. of I'm not talking about uh, friendship. Need. I'm, talk- well, I'm talking about banding together gun. for defense. No, if they they would not offer me a weapon. If anything, they would be a, a, a an advantage for them to not only commit violence in name of war. Then they'd be committing suicide because the two of you together might be able to stop something that one of you alone can't. Yeah. You know, again, you know, there there are people in combat who Vietnam, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of Vietnam vets who experienced this or saw or heard about these types of events where people were just killed because of racism or were allowed to die because of racism. I'm sure. So I I don't think I don't think so. So that's that's your line in the sand. Okay. Well, yeah. you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not the font of all wisdom here, and I may be wrong. I may be wrong. I'd be interesting to see what other people have to say. Eric, thank you for the call. Thanks for a thoughtful uh, disagreement. I appreciate it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Brian in Joliet, Illinois. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today? I uh, believe there might be a schism between the Catholic Church in the U.S. and in Europe, because in uh, the U.S. has gone so far to the right wing, and uh, my uh, I'm, I consider myself a Christian, but my interpretation is exactly the way you express it. I think, you know, yeah, like the Southern Baptist, I think people are entitled to any fantasies they want, but when those fantasies hurt people like uh, the evangelicals and, and uh, right-wing Catholics who believe that Trump is some kind of last prophet or something, you know, as to why, I don't know, but I have a problem with that. Uh, and uh, I think uh, really uh, uh, I'd like to, uh, if I may, uh, recommend a book real quickly. Sure. Sexism and God Talk, uh, 1983, by Rosemary Radford Ruther. 
highly relevant uh, for what's happening today uh, in terms of uh, uh, women's rights and the abortion from issue. From 1983. And Pardon? From 1983. From ni have you read it? I haven't, no, I, and I'm not familiar with, this, with the author either. Okay, Rosemary Radford Ruther, mm -hmm. and uh, you once mentioned, if I might real quick, um, that um, at one time uh, you read something that uh, up until the time of Gutenberg that uh, most Christians tended to worship Mary more than Jesus? Yes, it's, a re it's really well documented in uh, Leonard Schlein's book, and I, I knew Leonard Schlein before he passed away. Uh, he was a neuroscientist, a neurosurgeon, actually, a brain surgeon, and he wrote a book called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess. And in that book, he documents how prior to widespread literacy, in fact, you know, which was in the, in the period that was basically the century after Gutenberg's uh, invention of the printing press uh, or wide popularization of it, that uh, the Catholic Church's position was that you could go to hell for reading the Bible, first of all, only only you know, uh, properly, appropriately uh, vetted people could read the Bible. And secondly, most people weren't literate. They didn't know how to read. And that lack of literacy, Schlein said, caused both sides of the brain to equally work. Uh, you know, that there wasn't so much hemispheric dominance as we have now. And that when you, when you take a child and you train them to interpret random sim symbols, as having meaning, this letter A means A, this letter B means, you know, and you put it on, a, add it to a, a, an O and a Y, and now you've got boy. You know, this is all abstract stuff. Abstract stuff is all processed in the left hemisphere, the right, you know, which controls the right side of the body. And we became left hemisphere dominant as a consequence of literacy. And within a generation of widespread literacy sweeping Europe, men began burning with women at the stakes and 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 the and most of your worship in most of your churches most of the uh, uh, cathedrals and churches uh, particularly the catholic ones across europe um, prior to that time were dedicated to mary after that time they all became all about jesus it, it became you know the masculine uh, essentially took over it's an absolutely brilliant thought-provoking mind-boggling book the alphabet versus the goddess by len schlein leonard schlein s-c-h-l-a-i-n so, well, that's very fascinating, Tom. I thank you very much. Yep. And, um, yeah, and uh, the Catholic Church uh, tends to bury the fact that, uh, what, they burn about 100,000 women at the stake for no reason? Well, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't think that, you know, today we can hold the Catholic Church responsible for what they were doing back then. No, I'm not holding them know, today, I, but, I mean, it's like they don't ever, you know, they somehow... Uh, forget that, and they. Uh, I, I don't think so. I, th I think th I think they're, they're you know they're, there's a, uh, a an acknowledgement of that history. Brian, I got to move along. Thank you for the call. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from One Nation Under God by Kevin Cruz: How Corporate America Invented Christian America, a book that was very kindly gifted to us by Scott Carter, who was recently a guest on our program. A wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, at heart, this book seeks to challenge Americans' assumptions, this is from the introduction, about the basic relationship between religion and politics in their nation's history. For decades now, liberals and conservatives have been locked in an intractable struggle over an ostensibly simple question. Is the United States a Christian nation? This debate, largely focused on endlessly parsing the intent of the Founding Fathers, has ultimately generated more heat than light. Like most scholars, I believe the historical record is fairly clear about the founding generation's preference for what Thomas Jefferson memorably described 
as the separation, the wall of separation between church and state, a belief the founders spelled out repeatedly in both public statements and private correspondence. This scholarly consensus, though, has done little to shift public opinion. If anything, the country has more tightly embraced religion in the public sphere and in political culture in recent decades. And so this book begins with a different premise. It sets aside the question of whether the founders intended America to be a Christian nation and instead asks why so many contemporary Americans came to believe that this country always has been and always should be a Christian nation. As the story of the early months of the Eisenhower administration makes clear, part of the answer, though not all of it, can be found in the mid-1950s when Americans underwent an incredible transformation in how they understood the role of religion in public life. Other historians have paid attention to the establishment of new religious mottos and ceremonies in those years, but most have misplaced their origins. Without exception, the works on the religious revival of the Eisenhower era attribute the rise of public religion solely to the Cold War. According to this conventional wisdom, as the United States fell into an anti-communist panic, its leaders suddenly began to emphasize the nation's religious traits as a means of distinguishing us from the godless communism of the Soviet Union. But as this book argues, the post-war revolution in America's religious identity had its roots not in the foreign policy of the 1950s, but rather in domestic economics and politics of the 1930s and early 40s. Decades before Eisenhower's inaugural prayers, corporate titans enlisted conservative clergymen in an effort to promote new political arguments embodied in the phrase, quote, freedom under God, end quote. As the private correspondence and public claims of the men leading this charge makes clear, this new ideology was designed to defeat the state power that its architects feared most. Not the Soviet regime in Moscow, but Franklin T. Roosevelt's New Deal administration in Washington. With ample funding from major corporations, prominent industrialists and business lobbies such as the National Association of Manufacturers and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in the 1930s and 40s, these new evangelists for free enterprise promoted a vision best characterized as Christian libertarianism. By the late 1940s and early 1950s, this ideology had won converts, including religious leaders such as Billy Graham and Abraham Verde, and conservative icons ranging from former President Herbert Hoover to future President Ronald Reagan. The new conflation of faith, freedom, and free enterprise then moved to center stage in the 1950s under Eisenhower's watch. Though his administration gave religion an unprecedented role in the public sphere, it essentially echoed and amplified the work of countless private organizations and ordinary citizens who had long been active in the, ca in the same cause. Corporate leaders remained central. Leading industrialists and large business organizations bankrolled major efforts to promote the role of religion in public life. The top advertising agency of the age, the J. Walter Thompson Company, encouraged Americans to attend churches and synagogues through an unprecedented Religion in American Life ad campaign. Even Hollywood got into the act with the director Cecil B. DeMille helping erect literally thousands of granite monuments to the Ten Commandments across our nation as part of a promotional campaign for his blockbuster film of the same name. Inundated with urgent calls to embrace faith, Americans did just that. The percentage of Americans who claim membership in a church had been fairly low across the 19th century, but it had slowly increased from just 16% in 1850 to 36% in 1900. In the early decades of the 20th century, the percentages plateaued, remaining at 43% in 1910 and 20 and then moving up slightly to 47% in 1930, 49% in 1940. In the decade and a half after the Second World War, however, the percentage of Americans who belonged to a church or synagogue suddenly soared, 
reaching 57 percent in 1950 and then peaking at 69 percent at the end of that decade, an all-time high. While this religious revival was remarkable, the almost complete lack of opposition to it was even more so. A few clergymen complained that this new public form of faith seemed a bit superficial, but they ultimately approved of anything that encouraged church attendance. In political terms, both parties welcomed the popular new drive to link piety and patriotism. The only thing they fought over was which side deserved more credit for it. Legal scholars likewise claimed there was nothing to fear in these changes, arguing that the adoption of phrases and mottos such as, in God we trust, or one nation under God, did not impact America's commitment to the separation of church and state. Such acts of ceremonial deism were, according to Yale Law School Dean Eugene Rostow, nothing but harmless ornamentation, so conventional and uncontroversial as to be constitutional. The Supreme Court sanctioned most of these changes, too. Even the outspokenly liberal Justice William O. Douglas concluded in 1952 that public invocations of faith were ironclad proof that Americans were a religious people whose institutions presupposed a supreme being. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader